Lord, we just thank you for this evening. We thank you for this opportunity to meet together in prayer and in lifting up your word. We do ask for you to bless the Collins family and heal Anna with this tumor that she's having, give the doctor skill, and we'll ask you just to touch that whole family and give them comfort through all of this. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. First Chronicles chapter 26, starting at verse 1. Up the previous three chapters, David has been organizing the worship of the temple. Uh, took the priests that at this time have a huge number of priests and no, they don't have the responsibilities that, of wandering around the wilderness. The Levites' job when they first started was to carry the, the tabernacle and all the materials. And David has now started to assign them new jobs. <laughs> the temple's getting ready to be built. He goes, you're not going to have to carry this thing around anymore. Now you're still sanctified to God. We'll give you new jobs. <laughs> And so now we're continuing this. We've, we've looked at the Levites. We've looked at the priests. And now we're moving into chapter 26. Concerning the divisions of the porters of the Kohites was Meshemiah, the son of Korah, the sons of Asaph. The sons of Meshemiah were Zechariah the firstborn, Zedael the second, Zebediah the third, Jephniel the fourth, Elam the fifth, Jehohaphnan the sixth, Eliaenai the seventh. Moreover, the sons of Obededom were Shemaiah the firstborn, Jehoshabad the second, Joha the third, Sakar the fourth, Nathaniel the fifth, Amiel the sixth, Issachar the seventh, Pelathai the eighth, for God blessed him. And unto Shimei, his sons were, were, his son were born, sons born that ruled throughout the house of their father, for they were mighty men of valor. And the sons of Simariah were Othni, and Rephiel, and Obed, and Elizabad, whose brethren were strong men, Elihu and Shechabiah, all of these were the sons of Obededom, Obededom. They and their sons and their brethren, able men for strength of service, were three, were 62 in, of Obedom. And Meshemiah had sons and brethren, strong men, 18. And Hosha, the children of Merari, had sons, Shimri the chief, for though he was not the firstborn, yet his father made him the chief. Hilkiah the second, Tebeliah the third, Zechariah the fourth, all the sons of these brethren of Hoshi were there were thirteen. Among these were the divisions of the porters, even among the chief men having wards one against another to minister to the house of the Lord. I'm going to stop there. <laughs> So here he's, he's getting the men that are going to be the porters, the guards of the gates. <laughs> All right, they, they're the keepers of the gates, they're the guards of the gates. And he lists out, these are sons of the Korahites, Korahites, which are one of the three, son, uh, one of the three four sons of uh, Levi, and we're, and we're also given this position. Now if we remember in verse 4, we talked about Obed-Beddum, does anybody remember who he is? He is the one that when God, when David moved the Ark of the Covenant and it was put on the cart, and 
uh, Uzzah reached out and touched the ark and was immediately killed. They were on his property. And he was a Levite, and they took the, the Ark of the Covenant off the cart, put it in his house, and for six months he was blessed before David decided it was time to bring the Ark of the Covenant all the way into Jerusalem. Uh, so this is somebody that we've already heard about back in uh, 1 Samuel 6 and 1 Chronicles 13. Nobody was allowed to touch the Ark. Matter of fact, when it was time to move the Ark... The priest would go in, they would cover it with the skins, they would put poles through the, the, the pole brackets. They had the rings, that's rings on it, and they put the poles through those rings and they would carry it, but nobody was allowed to touch it. And even the priests, when they were covering it, were very careful not to touch it, because they weren't supposed to touch it. So when, and so the only ones that were to carry it were the Korahites, <laughs> I believe it was the Korahites, I, one of, one of the tribes, they were the only ones that were supposed to carry it with the poles and it being covered. So when David moved it, started moving it to Jerusalem, he decided he was going to put it on a cart. And the oxen stumbled, hit a pothole, whatever, looked like the Ark of the Covenant was going to fall off the cart. Uzzah reached out to stabilize it, and God struck him dead. And this is, this is where they were at, his, his, his property right next to his property and he is a Levite who gets to be in charge of keeping the gates he and his family but it seems like since he was trying to save it that that would have otherwise the thing might have fell off well the problem was yes he had the right heart to save the save the Ark of the Covenant but they should never have been transporting it that way and he was a Levite who should have known better so when you should know better, and you need the scriptures, if you should know something and, and stand, stand firm, God has a greater judgment for somebody like that than he does for somebody who doesn't know. Uh, if you remember the story of Zechariah being told about John the Baptist's birth, he questioned God and saying, how do I know this is true? And what happened to him? He was struck dumb for the nine months of the until the baby was born, nine plus months, because we don't know how fast, and he was not able to speak until the baby was born, and he named him John like he was told to. Why? Because he's a priest. He should not have doubted God's call. Mary, the first thing she said, how can this be? I've never known a man. You know, and God did not strike her dumb, did not do anything to her. He just said, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and you shall give, give birth to the, the anointed. Why? Because she was just a young girl who did not have the knowledge that Zechariah had, so God did not bring judgment upon her for the same thing that Zechariah had been gone. And all through history, we see the same thing. When somebody knows better and questions God, God deals with them a lot stronger than he does with somebody who doesn't know better. And if you look at your own life, how many times did God let you get away with things when you first got saved that today you can't get away with at all? You know, uh, whatever, whatever it is in your life, there's always something in our life where God has worked with us on, and maybe we could easily tell a lie in the past, and now if I even think about telling a lie, I feel guilty. All right? Uh, might have been somebody that was into alcohol or drugs, and, and then God starts working with them and getting them to the place where they don't even, if they just think about that. And so the more we know about God, the more accountable we are 
to be obedient to him. Now, I don't say that so if people go, well, I'll just stay away from church. I won't learn anything. I won't be accountable anymore. I don't think that works. I think God also takes you were supposed to know. <laughs> yeah. you, know you, you avoided church for that reason. <laughs> you were supposed to know you're now accountable for it. Uh, but God does say that we're, as we are more and more knowledgeable, he says we're more and more accountable. And, you know, we do the same thing with our kids. When our kids are young and don't know better, we, we usually are more lenient with that three, four-year-old. If a teenager does the same thing, it's like, it's time for you to grow up. And, and you know better, and we discipline them a lot harder than we would the young child. And God does the same thing with us. As we mature, he starts saying, okay, you know better. It's, it's time to move forward. That's why I think being a Christian, being a Christian, it's harder in a way because you know not to do things before you didn't. And so, to me, I mean, it's not harder just that you recognize it. There's an accountability. Yeah. Mm-hmm. There's an accountability because you, you now know. I know what I'm supposed to do. Now when I disobey God, I don't have the, the idea that, well, I didn't know better. Mm-hmm. Uh, and God says, no, I, I have taught you. You've read the Bible. You, you've been taught. And so when Uzzah reached out, number one, he was a Levite. He should never, he should have known not to put the ark on. He should have also known not to try to touch the, the ark of the covenant. So two, two wrongs. The first one led to the, to, the one, the, to the other one that everybody goes, well, that was so harsh. Well, he should never have allowed it to be put on in the first place. And if he had never let it get put on in the first place, he wouldn't have been judged for reaching out and touching it. And that's where we are. How many times have we made a bad decision knowing it was wrong, then later on suffered even worse because the decision led us someplace we shouldn't have been in the first place and we made another bad decision that was even worse than the first decision that we wouldn't have been in if we had followed God in the first place. And that's where Uzzah was during during that attack. So yes, it seems harsh that he was just trying to stop the ark from falling, uh, but it should never have happened. Apparently he did. Well, the next question is, could, would God have let it fall in the first place? So we don't know, you know, it hit a pothole. Was it going to fall? Was it not going to fall? He thought it was and reached out. And I can't judge that. I wasn't there. I didn't, don't know what he did. And I, his instinct was just reach out and keep it from falling. Mm-hmm. And God said, well, that's wrong. You shouldn't have been. You, you shouldn't have done that, and you shouldn't have been there at that place, at that time. Because one of the hardest things we have is most people get in trouble for being at the wrong place at the wrong time. And a lot of times we're at the wrong place at the wrong time because we made a wrong decision to put us there. So we need to be very careful about our decisions because consequences start rolling up on our con- on our decisions. We make a bad decision, and then another bad decision, and another bad decision. And at the time, how many times have our bad decisions appeared to be the right thing? Us are reaching out to keep the ark from falling seemed like the right thing to do because he was at the wrong place. He was on the cart where, you know, the ark was on the cart at a time when it shouldn't have been, and he got punished for doing what seemed to be right at that point. And everybody says the same thing. Well, that was harsh. Why would God have done that? He knew better than to touch it. He knew better than to put it on a cart. And God says that was it. Um, I did want to just mention that um, you talked about how some, like Zechariah, 
questioned, really? I mean, he was clearly speaking to God. This is in my own life. It's like, is that me speaking or is that God? You know, and so I, you know, yeah. Speaking to an angel in the holy of whole, the holy place yeah. in an answer to something they'd been praying about. Now, there was no reason for him to question. Right. Mary's came out of the blue. You know, uh, Mary, you're going to give birth. Uh, how can that be? You know, I haven't been praying about this. You know, maybe she was, but she wanted to get married first before she had a baby. His was a very clear, God, I don't understand. You know, I don't know. I believe this. And because he's a leader, God says, huh, we're, we're going we're to take care of you here. You're not going to speak again until the baby's named. And this is something that we need to be very careful of as we go about wandering into the business of God is, are we listening? Are we going to stand firm in what we learn? And this is what's so important because it's so easy to not walk by faith and not trust whatever's going on you know, and just say, no, it doesn't make sense to me, so it must not, it must not be true. Now, the opposite end of this is to presume about something and say, I'm acting on faith, you know, and when, when there's no talk of God, no, no following of God, and that's two extremes. We can do no faith at all, which gets us in trouble, or we can get presumptuous and walk outside of God. I have known people that say, well, God has healed my sight, and they break their glasses. Usually all that means is they're buying another pair of glasses within a couple months. You know, when they find out that God didn't heal them of their sight, or they throw away their medicine because God has healed their body. Well, you want to be very careful on that. You know, there is that point where, yes, God can heal. And don't get me wrong, I believe God can heal. I believe he can heal sight. But I think I would make sure that, and they're, and they're saying, it's all by faith. I know I'm healed, so I'm tossing out this medicine. I'm tossing out my glasses. Well, what basis are you saying that I am healed? You know, do you know, have you walked out in healing or are you just being presumptuous? And there's, both extremes are not good. All right. Now, walking in faith is very important. God, I know that you're going to do this for me. I know that you can help me. And walking in that faith is good. But don't walk in presumption. And this is a hard place, hard decision on that. Uh, you know, if you've got scripture that backs up what you're saying, go ahead and do it. But be, be very careful because God did not heal every single person that he came in contact with over the years. You know, Paul said, I've got this thorn in the flesh that I can't see, you know. Uh, and at one point he says, see how large the letters I'm writing because he was basically almost blind. All right. Many believe that, that might have been his thorn in the flesh from when he was blinded uh, at uh, the road to Damascus. But when he's writing this letter, he says, see how large these letters are, and I'm writing it myself. <laughs> All right. Uh, you had the beggar that John, uh, Peter and John healed after Pentecost at, at the uh, Gate Beautiful. And people go, well, Jesus healed every single person he came across. Well, how many times did Jesus go past the Gate Beautiful in his four years of ministry? He would have gone to the Jerusalem at least three, three times a year had to have gone past this poor beggar that said he'd been there his whole life and never got healed by Jesus, but Peter and John, through the Spirit, healed him. So we want to be very careful. You know, God does miracles in his time, not our time. And we want to be very careful of that. 
Uh, I like people to get confirmation that they've been healed before they go off the deep end. You know, it might be one thing, take your glasses off, not wear them and, and then go to the optometrist and find out that, hey, I, my eyes are perfect now and my vision's perfect. Go to the doctor and make sure that they say that you are cleared so that you can get off that medicine. Don't just throw it away. <laughs> and if you're in Pentecostal circle, circles, they like to tell you to just throw your, you know, destroy your glasses, throw, throw away your medicine. You have faith that God has done this. And if you don't do it, you don't have faith. I don't buy that. I don't buy that logic at all. So, all right, here we are looking at uh, verse 13. And they cast lots as well, the small as the great, according to the houses of their fathers for every gate. The lot eastward fell to Shelemiah, then to Zechariah his son, the wise counselor. They cast lots, and his lot came out northward. And Obadiah southward, and his sons to the house of Asumpim. And Shumpin and Hosea, the lot came forth westwardly, with the gate of Shalaketh by the causeway to the going up, ward against ward. Eastward were the six Levites, northward four a day, southward four a day, to the, toward Asaphim, two, two and two, and Par Bar, westward four at the causeway and two at the bar, Par Bar. These were the divisions of the porters among the sons of Korah, among the sons of Merari. So here now they've all been divided and now they're casting lots to see who gets to guard what gate. Which family is responsible for guarding what gate? Uh, most of us don't really make much difference on this. We don't know the gates of, of the temple. Um, but we do know that the, west, the eastern gate was the major one. People came in from the east. The prayers and everything looked eastward toward the rising sun. And so we see here, it says they cast the lots small to great, which means if you were a larger group, you did not get any extra benefit from a small group. So they didn't, they didn't say, okay, you're twice the size, so you get two lots in here, to, two chances to get this, and you're, you're small, you only get one. Everybody was equal in this lots, is what that is, is coming to say. Everybody was equal. <laughs> you know, equal chance of getting the, the gate. And... When Obeded, it says, and his son of the house of Asumpin uh, was cast. And it says that they were going up ward by ward or area by area. And it says this word for Asumpin is a word for storehouse. So there were storehouses all around the wall of the, the temple. So the you had the temple in the center with the holy place, the holy of holies. You had all the altars, the, the altar in front of that. You had all the tables for killing all the animals. And then you had a wall around the temple. And against the wall, both inner and outer, were apartments for the, for the priests and the Levites and storehouses and treasury houses. So here, this family, uh, the six Levites that were on there, uh, toward Asumpim were the ones that were in charge of guarding the, the residences and the storehouses. Now the storehouses were very important because that's where all the treasury was kept, that's where the offerings were kept, that went to the Levites. And then they went to 
Par Bar, which is the apartments attached to the side of the temple, or the, or the wall of the temple. So we have the storehouses, then we have the apartments where the Levites are staying. So remember, the Levites went to work for two weeks at a time, and then the next group of people came in for two weeks, and then the next group of people came in two weeks. So you served for uh, four weeks a year out of, out of all of this. And out of that, then you went back home and you taught and ministered around your hometowns. And they, they served from, if you remember, they served from Sabbath to Sabbath. So there was a, on the Sabbath days, there was an overlap where two different divisions of priests would minister because that was the day most everybody was offering sacrifices. So you had twice as many priests on the Sabbath day as you did every other, every other day of the week. And they would be, be ministering, excuse me, they, they served two, two times a year for one week each. I, I, miss, I misspoke. <laughs> So they'd come in, they'd serve for a week, they'd go away for 24 weeks and come back for, for one week and go away for 24 weeks and come back for one week. That was their, their process. And while they were away, the Levites had a job. They were, the Levites and priests, when they were at their hometowns, they took care of their property, they took care of their fields, and they were to be teachers in their, in their cities. So they didn't just, okay, we're not priests this, you know, we're not priests, uh, we're only priests to it. Two weeks a year, we don't do anything else the rest of the time? No. <laughs> you know, they were supposed to teach. Now, not all of them did, you know, obviously, but they were supposed to. All right. So these were the divisions. They were all from the Korah's family, uh, Korite, Korhites. Um, and they were to the causeway that they were talking about in verse 18 is a raised, raised highway. Um, you know, we've been having highways for a long time, and the highways were always raised in case it flooded out. You didn't lose your, lose your road. And we all kind of know what it's like. You see these low roads, and they get flooded out uh, with a little bit of rain. Uh, highway 93, about four or five months ago, maybe not even that long, got flooded, and I got stuck waiting for the water to finally clear the wash. <laughs> and I'm wondering, what the heck's going on? And the, the little low side, you can still see where the water water flowed on both sides of it and it shut down the highway for about 40 minutes while the water cleared the wash. You know, highways aren't supposed to be built low. <laughs> it's one of the reasons they were called highways. <laughs> All right. And you're laughing, but that really was why they were called highways originally. They would raise up the water, uh, the, the road, so that the water, the floodwaters would go to the road but not, not cover them. So, all right, verse 20. And the Levites, and of the Levites, Ahijah was over the treasury of the house of God and over the treasury of the dedicated things. As concerning the sons of Lahadan, the sons of, Gersh, of the Gershomite Lahadan, chief fathers, even Lahadan and the Gershomite and Jehili, sons of Jehili, Zethan and Joel, his brother, which were over the treasures of the house of the Lord, and the Amorites and the Isharites and the Hebronites and the Uzaelites and the and Shebuel, the son of Gershom, and the son of Moses was ruler over the treasuries, and his brethren by Eliezer, 
Rahabai his son, and Jeshai his son, and Joram his son, and Zikri his son, and Shemomith his son. And Shemomith and his brethren were over all the treasures of the dedicated things which David the king and the chief fathers and the captains over thousands and hundreds and captains of the host had dedicated. Out of the spoils won in battle did they dedicate to maintain the house of the Lord. All right, we'll stop there for just a moment. So here we have those that are maintaining the treasury. This is a pretty big deal, all right? The treasury was all the money that came in in tithes and offerings. So people would come in with their tithes, and in that day and age, it wasn't always gold and silver, the, the tithes, but when it was gold and silver, it went into the treasury because it could be, they could have been bringing in lambs and fruit and vegetables and everything. And well, yeah, they've got the temple stuff going on. And David, this is what the last part of it, the, the money dedicated by David is all about. Uh, and that's the dedicated, the, you have the two treasuries. You have the treasury of the house of the Lord, which was all the tithes and offerings. And then you have the dedicated treasury for all the other gifts. All right. When we went through the book of Leviticus, we found that the tithes that people brought and offerings that they brought in was given to the Levites to support them. So they would, however they worked on splitting it up. The Levites then would take and give a tithe of their income to the priest, which were fewer priests than they were. And then the priest would give to the high priest and doesn't ever say, but I would, I would expect that the high priest probably burnt his offering to, to God because there was nobody higher than him. Uh, but this whole process just moved up the chain so the treasury was what was de devoted by the offerings and the tithes. The dedicated things were those special gifts that people brought in, especially David and his men, saying, uh, we would almost call them designated offerings. <laughs> All right, I'm giving this in support of this activity, and it can only be used for that activity. The dedicated offerings were kept separate and saying, this is what they're for. And their dedicated offering was for the temple at this point in time. And so, and David, as we read in the, you know, th four chapters ago, David had given tons of gold, tons of silver. He said, and brass and iron, I can't even count. You know, I, I gave these tons of these things. And if he gave, if they could count tons, how much did he give of iron and brass if it's uncountable? You know, technically I'm sure it was, but they go, hey, we've got so much of it, we don't need to count it anymore. Uh, you know, and so these guys here were given charge of these two divisions. And we, and we look in, the, in verse 26, and it says, Shelemith and his brethren were over all the treasures of the dedicated things, which David the king and the chief fathers and captains over a thousand hundreds and captains of the host had dedicated. Out of the spoils of the battles, they did dedicate to maintain the house of the Lord. And... If you remember, we've been talking before we got into all these names. <laughs> David was taking the spoils of battle that belonged to him, you know, which would have been the king's portion, which would have been larger than everybody else's, and he was just putting them in the temple. He said, I'm giving this to God. It's going to go build the temple that God won't let me build, but I'm going to make sure that there are plenty of gold, silver, brass, iron, whatever they need. David had the rocks all, all hewn and ready to go. Uh, he had them all stacked up and wh you know, wherever they were at, they were stacked up and 
all Solomon had to do is put together the erector set that, <laughs> that he put together. You know, here, here's rock number one, rock number two, rock number three. Um, here's the post for it. And David had given him the plans, the materials, had already cut the wood, had already cut the stones. All, Solomon gets credit for building it, but David did all the work. <laughs> He's even organizing the people for the maintenance of it. So this is kind of an interesting thing. David wanted to build this temple so bad. And when we get into it, he's going to say, God gave me this plan. He's going to go, God spoke this plan to me. He gave it to me. So he's saying, this is all God's house anyway. God, God didn't let me build it, but he let me, do all, he let me do all the planning for it. And he has been for a long time providing his money, his, his part of the battle spoils, and saying, it's going to God. I'm going to keep giving it to God. I'm going to keep, keep lifting up God for all of this. And then it tells us that uh, of all that Samuel the seer, the pro- Saul, Saul the son of Kish, and Abner the son of Ker, and Joab the son of Zeruiah had dedicated, and whosoever had dedicated anything, it was under the hand of Sheomith and his brethren. Now, in verse 28, maybe you recognize some of these names. Saul, or Samuel, the priest that, the, that uh, anointed Saul to be king and then anointed David to be king. You have Saul, the son of Kish, the first king of, king of Israel, had dedicated some things toward, toward the temple, obviously. He is not well known for his following of God. But obviously, he knew that this was, time was coming, and he made these dedicated gifts. Abner, does anybody remember who Abner is? He was the general of Saul's army. Joab, the general of David's army. So these guys have been in battle, and they have been dedicating things to God's temple. I don't believe that they dedicated their entire spoils, but they've dedicated enough that God recognized them and Joab is the son of Zuriah, which is David's sister. And all of these things, all that had been dedicated to God, went into the hand of uh, Shelomith. He, he's being, and you've got to think about this. Before we were saying that there's tons of gold, tons of silver that David has put in there. He's in charge of all of that. He is trusted. There's a lot of important people in this one. And they're not the only one in the list that would probably be in that list that gave, but he's saying these are people, and these ones have probably given large chunks of, chunks of it because these generals, again, the king got a larger portion. The generals would get a good-sized portion, and the people would get smaller and smaller portions of the, of the spoil. And he's saying these generals, these kings, have all given to, this, to God's house. And they're getting recognition of, of their gifts. Verse 29. Of the Izharites, Shenaniah and his sons were, were there, were, were for the outward business of Israel, for officers, for judges, for the Hebronites and Heshabiah and his brethren, men of valor, a thousand seven hundred were officers among them of Israel and on this side of the Jordan westward in all the business of the Lord and in the service of the king. Among the Hebronites was 
Ha, the chief, even amongst the Hebronites, Hebronites, according to the generation of his fathers, in the 40th year of the reign of David, they were sought for, and there were found among them mighty men of valor at Jezer of Gilead. And his brethren, men of valor, were 2,700 chief fathers, whom David king, or whom King David made rulers over the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh for every matter pertaining to God and the affairs of the king. All right, so here we have David organizing rulers over regions. And you don't necessarily recognize these as regions. But he says he's put these men over the business of over Israel. And then he put uh, 1,700 of them on this side of the Jordan, which means the west side of Jordan. All right. When you see this side of Jordan, when it's referred to by Israel, it's talking about the west side of Jordan toward the Mediterranean. If it says the other side of the Jordan, <laughs> it's talking about where the uh, Gadites, uh, um, yeah, terrible draw, draw blank. The, the Gadites, the half-tribe of Manasseh, and the... Um, What's the third tribe? Reubenites. Reubenites. <laughs> All lived. They lived on the far side. And if you remember, why did they live on the wrong side of the Jordan? Because when they came up to the River Jordan, they go, we've had enough of this wandering around. We've conquered this area. The grass is really good. The fields are good. It's perfect for raising cattle. And so two and a half tribes were allowed to stay on that side under one condition, that when they crossed the Jordan, all the fighting men went with them. So they could leave their wives and their children under 20 uh, on the land with all their cattle, but all the fighting men had to go with them across the Jordan River until the land was conquered. And so those two and a half tribes were allowed to stay on the wrong side of Jordan. And... It was a hard thing for them because they're on the wrong side of the Jordan and everything bad that happens to Israel almost all starts on that side of the Jordan. All right. So when you read their history, everybody gets swept away on those countries often because they're not in the promised land. They were Israelites who decided not to enter the promised land. So they were Israelites, but they did not go into the rest of God in, in the promised land. All right, chapter 27. Now the children of Israel, after their number, to wit, the chief fathers and the captains of the thousands and the hundreds and their officers that served in the king in any matter of the courses, which came in and went out month by month throughout all the months of the year, every course were 24,000. All right, I'm going to stop there because we're going to read a long list of names, but right now he's listing out the standing army. Now remember, at this point in time, you did not usually have a standing army. David is going to have a standing army of 24,000 people that serve one month at a time. But now that gives him really close to 300,000 army at a, at a moment's notice. And that's his standing army. That's not even calling the, the farmers and the, and the workers to go to battle. All right. And in this day, usually what would end up happening is around spring, right after, the, right after the harvest was planted, the king would call all the farmers and all the artisans and say, we're going to go to war. And this happened not just in Israel, but all over the place because 
your fields were planted, you didn't have anything to do until harvest time, so the kings would go to war. You know, during that period of time, for about four to six months, they'd gather all their people together and go to war. And this was a way that people could make money. I mean, going to war in that day was a way to make money because you got the spoil from the battle. You got to keep every, all the jewels and all the gold and all the, all the special things you could find, all the swords and whatever else you found. It was a great way to get rich if you, if you lived. <laughs> then they would come back. When it was harvest time, all war would end all over the place because these armies needed to go back home and <laughs> to harvest their fields. And then all winter long it rained and everything and it was not a good time to go to war anyway so they would wait till spring and they'd plant the fields and then they'd go out to war. David has built an army of 24,000, let's say professional soldiers. One month a year these guys would come and serve for 24,000 men for one month. Then they'd go home and do whatever they did for the next 11, 11 months. But it also gave him a chance to, he had an army of just shy of 300,000 that were well-trained. These were the soldiers. And so he had a very large, well-equipped, well-trained army where most of these nations, the only people you had professional were usually the, the king's guard or the general's guard. You had a small group of people that protected important people. And the rest of them were, for lack of a better term, the disposable soldiers that you, that you had. Um, so here we have him talking about this. Now it says, verse 2, Over the first course of the first month was Joshabim, the son of Zebedel, and his course were 24,000. Of the children of Perez was the chief of all the captains of the host of the first month. And over the course of the second month was Dodai, an Ahohite, and his course was Milkloth, also the ruler of his course, likewise, were 24,000. And the third captain of the host in the third month was Benaniah, the son of Jehodiah, the chief priest, and his course were 24,000. This is that Benaniah who was a mighty among the 30 and, and above the 30, and in his course was Amazabad, his son. I'm going to stop there for just a moment because I want to make sure you all are recognizing when he said that this is the Benaniah who was mighty among the 30 and above the 30. This is going back and talking about David's mighty men. Way back at the beginning of the of 1 Chronicles, we talked about David's mighty men. And they're just reminding you, this is one of David's mighty men that is in charge of this group. The fourth captain was, the fourth month was uh, Aziel, the brother of Joab, and Zebediah, his son, after him, and his course was 24,000. And the fifth captain of the fifth month was Shamhuth, the Izrahite, and his course was 24,000. The sixth captain for the sixth month was Ira, the son of Ichkesh, the Tekoite, and his course was 24,000. The seventh captain in the seventh month was Hiles of Pelonite, the children of, of the children of Ephraim, and in his course was 24,000. The eighth captain for the eighth month was Shibikiah, the Hushite, and of the Zarhites, and in his course were 24,000. The ninth captain for the ninth month was Abizer, the Anothothite of the Benjamites, and in his course were 24,000. The tenth captain for the tenth month was Maharai, the Neth. 
of the Zetharites, and in his course were 24,000. The 11th captain of the 11th month was Benaniah the Pirathonite of the children of Ephraim, and his course was 24,000. And the 12th captain of the 12th month was Heldei the Nethothite, and Othniel, and and in his course were 24,000 people. So these are the standing army of David, and I'm not going to read it all over again. So, but I think David was also saying, I'm going to prepare. All of this has been preparing for the future. And I think here he's saying, okay, Solomon, you're going to have, an arm, you're going to have a standing army of close to 300,000. They're all going to come in. And, and I think what they did most of that month was probably close order march and practice their sword, you know, sword and archery and stand guard, you know, stand guard, the same thing the peacetime military does, a lot of nothing, <laughs> you know, preparing for the day that they might need to be used, and probably the most boring time to be in the military is during a peace, because all you do is drill and go to classes and, and, and learn. David is, ran, is close to the end of his 40 years, because the last chapter says, in his, four, the beginning of this said, in his, the 40th year of David, so he is David reigned for 40 years. So this is all his last year. He's organizing everything for Solomon and setting up an army. So for the date period of that, that time, this is a pretty big deal to have a standing army. Not very many nations had standing armies. Like I say, you had an army division or something that would be set up to protect the king. And you'd have a small company of men that would be around the, the, the guard if you've ever looked in there, these, these people would say that this was the guard, the king's guard, the, the general's guard. They were the ones that were responsible to keep them alive. And that's about all that most armies, most nations had at this period, period of time. Verse 16. Furthermore, over the tribes of Israel, the, ru the ruler of the Reubenites was Eliezer, the son of Zikri, of Simeon, of the Simeonites, Shethathiah, the son of Mahakah, of the Levites, was Hasabiah, the son of Kimuel, of the Aaronites, Zadok, of Judah, Elihu, one of the brethren of David, of Israel, of Issachar, Omri, the son of Michael, of, the, of, the, of Zebulun, Ishmaiah, the son of Obadiah, of the Nathatali, Jethamoth, the son of Azrael, of the children of Ephraim, Hosea, the son of Azariah, of the half-tribe of Manasseh, Joel, the son of Pederiah, of the half-tribe of Manasseh in Gilead, Edo, the son of Zechariah of Benjamin, Jahesil, the son of Abner, of Dan, Azarel, the son of Jerotham, these were the princes of the tribes of Israel. So each of the tribes of Israel had a person that was in charge of that tribe. Uh, this is David organizing everything. He's going, okay, I've got basically 12 regions out there, each region of a tribe. I want to put one person in charge of each of those tribes. And this is a wise thing that David did was to put somebody in charge of each tribe. Because there were going to be times when, even in David's day, there were times when people said, you know, especially when he first started, what have we to do with you, David of Judah? 
Now, we think about the tribes being all united all the time, and they really weren't. They were almost as bad as the United States when it first started, before we became the United States, and every, every state was an individual of the, of, unto themselves, making their own money, making their own rules, making their own laws, uh, which was really bad when you were adjacent to somebody and you had totally different laws than they did. And this was the way Israel was during that period of time. You had 12 not quite nations, but they, they, were, they were the nation of Israel, but they were 12 very distinct groups, and getting them to cooperate was only happening when something really big happened. Uh, a nation attacked them, and they would call for help, and they'd all come and help that one nation, but other than that, they were at battles with themselves. <laughs> they were always fighting each other. So David has picked up these leaders and said, I'm appointing these people to be princes of these lands or actually they were already the princes of the land but he starts recognizing them in my kingdom you are a prince you can when I need to talk to the leaders of it you 12 will all come to to the council and we will talk and we will get get a decision made of course David's going I'm going to make the decision you guys are going to implement it but it was a way for them to be able to now disperse that information from somebody that they cared about a little bit more than necessarily the king um, and if you're familiar with the history of like the medieval days, the kings oftentimes were just figureheads even in the old days. The dukes and the, and, uh, the princes ran those little areas up and you know, they didn't always do things the way the king wanted them to be done. <laughs> and there were many times where the dukes would fight each other. They're in the same nation this, under the same king and they were fighting each other. They weren't even fighting another nation. It's just, you're, I don't like what you're doing on my borders and they would fight each other. And the king would have to step in and bring, <laughs> bring peace oftentimes to them. This is what was going on during this period of time and David saying, no, we're gonna, we're gonna organize this. We're going to make you all one. You guys are recognized by the throne. Come, come, and, see, you know, come and see me, <laughs> all right? Um, well, they, well, of these ones, the, in verse 30, it's not, it's not Levites. These are Hebronites. These were people that were warriors that he put in charge of military in those areas. Now, these guys are they're heads of the family, basically. All right, so these are heads of the family, and he's recognizing their, the heads of the family and saying, I've now made you princes of those areas or Technically, rulers is a better definition of it than princes. So, because princes would immediately say that they're part of David's family. He goes, but you are rulers of your, your area. You're the family head, and I'm recognizing you as the family head, and, you, and I'm giving you authority to be the kingly authority to be in charge of that, that uh, tribe. So, and the other ones were just military guys. They were the, the officers. They would do, oversee everything. Because what ended up happening with, you know, without a professional army like these had, you had a bunch of officers that were trained, and their first job when they called all the troops together was to train these guys how to fight a little bit. You, know, you got a whole bunch of farmers, and some of them had never been in battle, and you had to teach them how to follow orders. Uh, so they would have a very quick boot camp, 
Uh, and these officers were pretty good at teaching these guys. And basically, they would say, if you learn to obey instructions that I'm giving you, you might live through, the, through, the, through this battle. You know, if you follow my instructions and you follow what I'm telling you to do, you stand a greater chance to win, uh, come out alive. And these guys were good at it. They were good at it. They were usually very, as I said, mighty men. They, they had a reputation. Many of David's mighty men had reputations of killing hundreds of people in a single battle. All right, uh, you know, 30, 30 people, 100 people going in and killing a giant, you know, whatever, whatever it was, and their reputation, you know, preceded them. So when they would say, all right, I've gone into battle and I've killed 100 men, learn, you know, learn to obey and uh, learn from me. And people go, oh, I like that idea. I want to live. I want to live through this battle. Uh, and like, even in that day, as in today's world, more people run away from battles than die in battles. Uh, and it's true, even in today's world, people run and hide and, and are missing in action. <laughs> and more of them are missing in action than actually die in any battle. Uh, and sometimes they come back with excuses. I took a wrong turn, I ended up in the ditch, I got chased away, uh, whatever it might be. And usually the officers are pretty easy going on them because they know, they know how easy it is to get scared and run. And if you do any study in history and everything, you find that these battles had more people run away than, than actually die in them. So when it says that 20,000 people died or 100,000 people died, that's a pretty big deal because that meant a lot more of them ran away from the battle. And you'll also hear the term, they routed the enemy. Okay, what that means is the war was going so bad that they just turned tail and ran away and, and that is when most of them would die. All right, when they were standing there fighting, they get injured and everything, but when they turned their back and started running away from the battle and the enemy's chasing after them because they're in bloodlust, they killed these guys you know, shot them in the back with arrows and, and slings and stabbed them in the back. Most of these guys died running away from battle when they were routed. Okay. Well, it is 7.30, so we're going to end here. Wanted to get further, but that's okay. Verse 25 of chapter 27. Lord, we just thank you for the day. We ask you to bless and guide and show us what all these things work for us and, that, and ask us to see what we're going to do. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Listening friends, where will you be when you die? We ask this question of a lot of people oftentimes and the biggest answer we'll get is, I hope I will be in heaven. If hope is your answer, you don't know God and this is a problem. We all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The wages of the sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. If you do not know for sure that you're going to go into heaven, please, today, make your decision to follow him. It is simply just ask him, Lord, I am a sinner. Please come into my life and save me and make him your Lord. If you've said that prayer, let us know so that we can send you a new believers packet. You can contact us at office at chloridebaptistchurch.com or even pastor at chloridebaptistchurch.com. Or you can just send us a regular letter at Chloride Baptist Church, P.O. Box 65, Chloride, Arizona, 86431. Thank you very much for listening and have a wonderful day.